are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. Last week we discussed the first couple verses of chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 7, uh, and we had a great time doing it. Just a few chuckles there. Those of you who are not here, you can go back and watch it. Make sure you have a pillow to cover your face. We are continuing in 1 Corinthians, and as we, uh, as we do, we preach through the Bible verse by verse, and we take on what we get, no matter what the subject is. Uh, and today, the subject, I promised last week that when we talked about what married couples do in bed, that that was going to be the awkward week, and the rest of the weeks this month are just going to be divisive. So, there you go. Last week, I was able to stand here on Saturday and witness the vows of a newly married couple. Uh, and I love doing it. I, I love officiating weddings. It's one of the joys of my position is, is doing those weddings. But in the back of my mind, when I am with people, hearing their vows as they stare into each other's eyes, I wonder what is going to happen to each couple. Hopefully, I have given them some good tools for their marriage during my premarital counseling sessions with them as I spend eight weeks, at least two hours with each, per week with each person. I pray for them. I promise to be active in their lives, but when it comes down to it, when life hits, when the rubber meets the road, it's up to the couple of what they're going to do with their marriage. Every single couple has a choice. Will they actively work to be God-honoring in their marriage? Will they actively work to be one with their spouse? Or will they settle? Will they settle in the cultural way of being married and aimlessly drift through life in the past that has a big divorce sign above it? According to statistics, over 50% of all marriages in the United States will end in divorce or separation. And in case you wondered, that breaks out into 41% of all first marriages, 60% of all second marriages, and 73% of all third marriages. And it just gets higher and higher the more marriages you have. Thankfully, if you look at the divorce trends over the past several years, the divorce rate in the United States is beginning to dip a little bit, uh, but that's because the marriage rate in the United States is dipping too. Too many kids are looking at what happened to their folks and saying, we don't want to go through that. So they settle to just living with their person instead of making the commitment in marriage. Now, this one's for free. If you wonder the professions with the highest divorce rate, the top three professions with the highest divorce rate are dancers, bartenders, and massage therapists. There you go. So if you want to stay married, don't become one of those three. The professions with the lowest divorce rate, okay, so number three from the bottom, clergy. So I'm set. <laughs> number two from the bottom, optometrists. 
right? <laughs> okay, the bottom profession. Who wants to guess what the bottom profession is? No one's going to do it, but anyone want to show? Anyone? Farmers? Very close. Anyone? Agricultural engineers. It is a farmer. <laughs> so, over the past several weeks, we have discussed how culture views different subjects uh, and how the church views different subjects. Talked about that a lot last week. We've acknowledged that sometimes the culture and the church are both wrong on certain subjects. Because the culture, when they create their viewpoint on a subject, they are automatically against God. Because they do it according to our, the heart. You know, the gold Disney, follow your heart. And you know it just messes things up when you do. The church looks at culture and says, we know that's wrong, and so they react against culture. And lots, most of the time when you create a theology re of reaction, you get it wrong. So lots of times when you pick a subject, you look at the culture, it's wrong. You look at the church, you find out it's wrong too. We need to come to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say? We're called to look at the Bible, see what truth is, despite what culture says and sometimes despite what our church says. We must look at the Bible because the Bible is the standard for truth. Divorce is one of those subjects where sometimes both the culture and the church is wrong. I realize that when I'm up here talking about divorce, you know, last week was hard enough because I said that three-letter word more than some people have ever heard it in their lives. This week, I'm preaching a topic that literally does divide churches, and it literally does cause pastors to be fired. I know several pastors that this was the last sermon they ever preached in their church. I'm not afraid of that happening here, but there is this little nervousness in my heart because this is a subject, it's sensitive. My goal is to present what scripture actually says. You and I might disagree on the application of what scripture says, but hopefully we can disagree based upon scripture and not upon what the culture has taught us or what our previous churches have taught us. Hopefully we can look at scripture and have that discussion. So let's read Paul's view on the matter of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. Paul says, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace 
How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? In the grand scheme of things, when you compare this passage to the rest of the Bible, it's relatively short. What? Nine verses. But it's amazing how many thick books have been written on it. They've taken this passage and they've talked about word, word, word. They just, they just tear it apart and every single book has something different they want to say, which is why they can sell that book because it's something different. But sometimes in the, when you put too many words out there, you miss the point. So as we dive into the point, will you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would be with us today as you, we study your word. I ask that you would allow us to leave whatever preconceived notions we had behind and may we come to your word to want to actually know it. Teach us what it says. Teach us what it means. And more than that, Father, may we see you in it so that we can reflect you to the world around us. Lord, that is the desire of our heart, in spite of so often how we live to the contrary. We want to reflect you. So teach us how to do that, Father. Even in our marriages, even as we talk to married couples, teach us this, Lord. Father, I ask that I'm up here, I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Today we're going to talk about divorce and we're going to talk about remarriage. Like I said, two hot button topics. We're going to begin with divorce. Last week I kept you awake, this week I can't guarantee it, okay? No matter what we believe about divorce and remarriage, everyone wants a black and white answer. Everyone does. Whether you're for divorce or against it, you either want to be, it's all okay, or it's all wrong. Same with remarriage. It's all okay, or it's all wrong. But nothing in life is black and white. Because of sin in this world, we live in a world that is colored gray. I'm not saying that God has not given us a standard to live by. He has. And his truth never changes. But sometimes our understanding of his truth is wrong because of sinfulness of our minds. And sometimes when we look at his truth, we might take his truth too far or not far enough because of the sinfulness of our minds, because of us wanting to take it and color it according to what we want it to be. That being said, let us define what divorce is. Divorce, put simply, is the termination of a marriage. Can we all agree on that definition? All right, good. Pretty much everyone you talk to will agree that divorce is terminating a marriage. Scripturally, divorce is a separation. A separation. Uh, in fact, the word that is used for divorce is separate. Separation. In Paul's day, a husband and wife in Roman society could look at each other and say, I'm leaving. Ciao. Pack the bags. Walk out. Never go to the court never get a certificate of divorce, but the fact that they are living in two separate places, not fulfilling their marital duties to each other, either physically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, any of that, 
just the fact that they're not fulfilling their marriage duties, culture and the law would say they're divorced because they are not fulfilling their marital duties. There is a separation that has occurred. In today's society, we split those terms. There are some people in today's society who are legally separated, which means they are, in the eyes of the law, still married, but they are living apart. They have different finances, all these sorts of things, but in the eyes of the law and the church, they are married. They're just separated. Paul, in his time, would never have seen that. They would have considered that a divorce because each party is refusing to honor the marriage commitment. Divorce is about the covenant. And once you refuse to honor that covenant, in Paul's day, you're divorced. Today, not only do we have divorce separation, but we have another term that we throw out called annulment. Annulment. Which is kind of fun to say. Annulment. It's kind of hard to say it correctly. Annulment is done through legal and religious means to declare a marriage null and void. It is simply said, you pay enough money to, the, to whatever church you're at, you go through the legal system, it simply says your marriage never took place. Now, I have to say something rather strong if you forgive me. Scripture never teaches annulment. You look through it from Genesis to Revelation, it's not there. Annulment professes that something never happened. That is what they're saying. That something never happened, which is another definition for a lie. Okay? The law and the church should never take part in lies. No amount of money can erase someone's past can say it never happened. And we should not pretend that it does. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. For at least once. So, what is a divorce? A divorce terminates a marriage. No matter what language you want to put on it, a divorce terminates a marriage. What does Scripture say about divorce? Well, first, Scripture says that divorce was not in the perfect plan of God. Divorce was not in the perfect plan of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and husband must not divorce his wife. Paul says that he's giving the command of the Lord, which means he is quoting what Jesus said when Jesus was on earth. He's passing that on. He says divorce was not created by God. How do we know this? Well, we can see this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He called them together to be one. We can boil all the biblical passages against divorce, why we should not do it, into two reasons. First, divorce destroys the image of God. Divorce destroys the image of God. When Jesus was on earth, some Pharisees came up to him and asked him about divorce. In Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 9, this happens. Mark 10, 2 to 9, some Pharisees come they tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
It was, because of your, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God took man and woman, husband and wife, fused them together into one. And he did it as a reflection of who he is. We've talked about this before. That God, the Trinity, is one God. Husband and wife is a mirror of that. They were to reflect who God is to the world around. A divorce shatters that image, which is why it shouldn't happen. Second, not only does divorce shatter the image of God, but it destroys the message of the gospel. Divorce destroys the message of the gospel. The gospel is a message of reconciliation. The scripture tells us that we were enemies of God. Now, because of Jesus, we are reconciled with him. We're brought into an intimate relationship. In the same way that Jesus brought reconciliation with us, we get to bring that message of reconciliation with others. Paul speaks about uh, the Jews of the Gentiles who are always at each other's throats in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Ephesians 2, 14 and 16, Paul says that Jesus is our peace who has made the two groups, the Jews and Gentiles who are against each other, into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Because the gospel is about reconciliation. God reconciling himself with us we get to turn around and show that reconciliation with others. We should always be seeking reconciliation. Divorce is not seeking that reconciliation. Divorce should not be this knee-jerk reaction to us. In Christ, we should be continually reaching out to our spouse and saying, how can we be more one? How can we pursue each other instead of going against each other? When we quickly seek divorce, we are saying that the gospel is not true, that Christ cannot reconcile us. So divorce was not in the perfect plan of God. Marriage was supposed to reflect who God is and how he deals with us, and divorce shatters both of those pictures. But divorce was allowed because of our sinful, hardened hearts. You remember what Jesus just said in Mark chapter 10. The Pharisees had told Jesus, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this to you. Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Moses writes, through God's inspiration, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Certificate of divorce. If something occurs, the Jews could divorce. 
We as humans are naturally sinful. We naturally are selfish. We naturally do not, recon- do not want to reconcile with people who have hurt us. We naturally look at the grass that is the other side of the fence and we say that it is greener and we want that. We forget the other side of the fence is in a drought also. Because of our sin, because of our selfishness, because of our natural bent, divorce was given. It wasn't given because of our righteousness. Because of sin, Jewish tradition allowed divorce in specific cases. The cases are this. Jews could divorce because of adultery, cruelty, humiliation, persistent refusal to provide food or clothing, willful conjugal neglect, and emotional neglect. Those are all the ways that Jewish culture that they could divorce, all the instances. It was a way of protection for the weaker partner. It was designed to protect a partner from the misuse by the other, again, because of sin. Through the years, the boundaries on divorce became looser and looser. In Paul's day, when he is writing, if you were a Jewish man, you could divorce your wife for pretty much anything. She looked at you wrong, she's out. Wife couldn't divorce her husband for anything in that time, if you were a Jew. If you were a Roman, things were different. If you were a Roman, husbands, wives could divorce for any reason. In fact, uh, wives would divorce their husbands more frequently than the other way around. We have writings of those days by Romans who describe certain society ladies as getting married just for the sake of getting divorced. Sounds familiar sometimes. We acknowledge that divorce was not in the perfect plan of God at the beginning of time. We acknowledge that divorce was allowed in the Old Testament, we read it, because of sinful hardened hearts. It was a protection against someone else's sin and abuse. But what does that mean for us now? We're not living at the time of creation. We're not living under the Old Testament law. We are called to reflect God and his gospel today. So where does divorce fit in for us today? That's the $50 million question. And if you don't want to hear it, you can just walk out right now. It'll be fine. In the New Testament, divorce is allowed in specific instances as a last resort. I worded that sentence very carefully. In the New Testament, divorce is allowed in specific instances as a last resort. Again, the status quo for a Christian is to pursue reconciliation. That's what we're supposed to do because of the gospel. We're to pursue reconciliation. We're to go to counseling. We're to seek help. We're to be honest with our friends and our family members of what is going on in our relationships so they can pray for us, so they can hold us accountable, so they can push us to be a reflection of who God is and what the gospel is. But as a last resort, when all avenues for reconciliation have been pursued and sin is still happening without repentance, yes, divorce is an option in specific instances. What are those instances? One instance is adultery, is what scripture tells us. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, Jesus says that adultery was a cause for divorce. 
It was a way to protect a spouse from the emotional and societal damage of sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Matthew 19, 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. If you think about it, someone who has committed adultery has already destroyed the marriage. The command for marriage in Genesis chapter 2 is that a husband and wife, the husband leaves all others, cleaves to the spouse, and they become one flesh. Someone who commits adultery destroys the one flesh aspect of marriage. So the process of divorce is merely acknowledging what has already happened. The marriage has been destroyed. A couple is to encourage to go through counseling to seek healing from tragic sin because we know that in Christ, reconciliation can happen. I've seen it. Many of you have seen it. It can happen. Divorce doesn't have to be an option for that instance. But if the party who has been sexually immoral is refusing to repent of their sin, reconciliation cannot happen. And divorce can be a last resort. So we've got adultery. Scripture also talks about abandonment. Abandonment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been, has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But the, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Some notes on this passage. Uh, Paul begins and says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. What he's saying is that Jesus didn't teach about this when he was on earth. He didn't. Paul is building on Jesus' teachings through, through the inspiration of God, what had been revealed to him. This is inspired, it's just not direct quote from Jesus on this earth. What is he saying? He's saying that when two people get married and they're not Christians, one becomes a Christian later on, and the one who is not a Christian says, I don't like this anymore. And they get up and leave. That's called abandonment. Divorce, they should allow them to go. If the unbeliever is willing to stay, let them stay. Why? Because the non-Christian is seeing the faith of the Christian spouse in the same way that hopefully the kids are. Hopefully the whole family, when they look at this Christian spouse, they see the prayers, the actions, the conversations, the attitudes of this Christian spouse toward the non-Christians. They see 1 Peter chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5 lived out blatantly, and every day these people are being slowly drawn to Christ. But if the non-Christian looks at it and says, no, I don't want it, and they leave, we're to let them go. We're to pursue peace for the sake of the gospel because hopefully through even the divorce process, when the non-Christian spouse looks at the Christian spouse, they see something different. And even through that divorce process, they're led to Christ through the faith lived out. Abandonment. One spouse abandons another because of beliefs. In a sense, this abandonment is breaking the marriage like adultery. 
Adultery breaks the one flesh aspect of marriage. Abandonment breaks the cleaving to your spouse. We're supposed to stay together. Immediately when you stop, the marriage is broken. And divorce is just acknowledging what has already occurred. Again, counseling should be pursued. But in cases of spousal abandonment, that's normally not repented of unless Christ saves that person. So in cases of unrepentant abandonment, divorce is allowed. So we have divorce as a last resort for adultery. We have it as a last resort for abandonment. And then the third A, abuse. Abuse. I and other conservative Bible scholars believe that abuse is a form of abandonment. One spouse may impose such intolerable conditions on you that you are forced to leave your house. And this forcing from home has the same effect as one as the other guy packing up and leaving. Abandonment. You're not fulfilling your duties. You're not cleaving to your spouse. You're forcing them away from you. That is abandonment. That is wrong. Now, abandonment in the Bible, whether you want to talk about it as abandonment or abuse, is the, wor- the wording that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7 is in the situation of an unbelieving spouse leaving a believing spouse. You might ask, but what if my spouse claims to be a believer, claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and they have abandoned me, or even worse, they have abused me? When someone abandons their spouse, they are sinning against God. When someone abuses their spouse, they are sinning against God. There is no excuse for either action. The Bible is clear, both are wrong. We studied back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 what happens when someone is living in unrepentant sin. Paul says that people from the church approach him. And if he refuses to repent, Paul says that we are to treat them like an unbeliever. We approach them, we confront them, we say, look at Scripture, this is wrong, please repent. They say, I don't care, I'm going to keep going. The church is to treat them like an unbeliever. So, under 1 Corinthians 7, if we treat them like an unbeliever, divorce is an option. Again, as a last resort, as a last resort. I need to say that in cases of abuse, the abused person should remove himself or herself and the kids from the situation while the counseling and legal processes are followed. We should never tell someone to stay in a place where they or someone else are harmed. God is not in that advice. Again, divorce should never be run toward. It is a last resort because it does break the picture that God designed marriage to be, but sin is still in this world, and sin still causes harm. And so divorce is a last resort option to protect people in situations of adultery, abandonment, and abuse because of sin. We wish that sin was not in this world. Oh, and we look forward to the day when sin will not be. But we live here. Divorce. Let's talk about remarriage. Remarriage. Many churches preach that when someone is divorced, they can't get remarried. But is that true? Is it? Well, great question. Thank you. 
consider some language that both Jesus and Paul used. Consider Matthew 19.9. We read it before, but let's read it again. Matthew 19.9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So, if someone divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery, Jesus says. So where marriage would seem to be bad, except there's this little phrase that Jesus puts in there. He says, except for sexual immorality. So, where marriage would not be adultery in that situation. At least that's what it seems to say. Bible scholars say when they look at that. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. He says, But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to peace. What does it mean that a brother or sister is not bound in cases of abandonment? Could it mean that they're not bound to the restrictions of remarriage? Let's explore this. Even if you don't want to, I'm going to. We know that when a spouse dies, remarriage is allowed because death has destroyed the unit of marriage and it can never be brought back. Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, 1 Corinthians 7, 39, Paul says, a woman, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Remarriage, Paul says, is allowable in cases of death. If one thinks about it, when someone is unrepentant in adultery, abandonment, abuse, whatever you want to talk about, and they've been disciplined by the church, they're treated like a non-believer, they are spiritually dead. Unbelievers, we are to treat them like they are spiritually dead. And if someone is dead, the marriage is dead and the living spouse is free to remarry. But again, this is a last resort. It cannot be taken as a black and white rule, but on a case-by-case basis, submitting to how God works through his church. But I believe that remarriage scripturally is allowable for cases of adultery, abandonment, and abuse because of how God works through his scripture. And I do believe, in fact, that marriage, remarriage should be encouraged in certain situations. Because as we discussed last week, God created us to have sexual desires. Sometimes those sexual desires are stronger than we can handle. And in those cases, instead of sinning against God while trying to be Puritan pious, we should get married again. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 8-9, he says, 1 Corinthians 7, 8-9, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In Corinth, not only were the married people engaging in sexual immorality, but the unmarried were as well, just like today. And Paul said that God has given marriage as a gift to his people, for lots of different reasons. A gift to be used and enjoyed as we talked about last week. And if we cannot control our desires, we should step bravely through the grace of God into a new marriage, seeking to glorify him in our lives and our enjoyments of his gifts. Now I need to highlight one thing. Remarriage is not allowable scripturally. There is no instance that I have seen where remarriage in a flippant divorce is allowable. These no-fault divorces that we have where we just don't like our spouse anymore and we want to get rid of them, Scripture does not allow remarriage in those instances. Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, 
1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Paul gives this command saying, if you, if you do remain unmarried or let's be reconciled. He, he applies that to the wife, but it's applicable to both husbands and wives. If someone wants to divorce for any reason other than adultery, abandonment, or abuse, remarriage is not an option scripturally. Even if the law says that you are divorced, that your marriage is ended, you are still married in God's sight, so you would be committing adultery. Remember, the rule is that divorce is not right. It is protected because of the sin among us to protect us. It is given as a protection because of our sin. It is not permitted because we have a disagreement or because we simply can't stand our spouse or because we're attracted to someone else or we don't love them anymore. It's not for that. It is a protection against harm. There you go. That is a very brief discussion on divorce and remarriage. As with any sermon, there are more aspects that need to be talked about, but I can't keep you here all day. If you have questions, please let me know. We can make an appointment. My job is to lead everyone to a more fuller understanding of what God's word says, and I'm never too busy for those conversations. Please, especially for this topic, make an appointment so I have time to prepare and make sure we have the time necessary for this. Before I close, I need to talk about grace. I need to talk about grace. I know many different people are going to be mulling over this subject. Whether they're listening or watching online. And for everyone's sake, we need to talk about grace. What if a listener has divorced for the wrong reason? What then? Is that divorced person a pariah? Not able to fellowship with the church? Not able to take part in the functions of the church? Are they cast out in the cold spiritually? So many people create a hierarchy of sins. Some people have their list. They have homosexuality, prostitution, divorce as their top three. And they'd run from everyone who has done it. But in God's eyes, every single one of us are the same. We are all sinners, desperately in need of God's grace. I find it interesting that when Paul, when he writes this, he says, don't divorce But if you do, he understands that we're all sinners. He understands that because of our hearts, we're naturally going to do things that are against the way of God, and that is why Jesus died. Because we are sinners, and we need his grace and his forgiveness in our life. Whether we have lied, whether we've disobeyed our parents, whether we've divorced for the wrong things, we've all done things that we know are wrong. And because of Jesus' death on the cross, when we turn to him in faith, we are forgiven. And he looks at us and says, I can still use you. Despite of, and in fact, because of your sin. Does that mean we should sin so that grace may abound? As Paul says, may it never be. But when we have, know that he gives the grace. It is for us to repent, to acknowledge that what we did was wrong, and come together and rejoice in the God who redeems. Maybe he'll bring you back with your spouse. Maybe he won't. Either way, it's for us to draw a line in the sand and say, that was then, this is now, and from now on, I'm going to pursue what God has called me to do. 
What if a listener has remarried after a wrong divorce? What then? Do you have to divorce your spouse? Go back because you're living in sin. No. You don't have to leave your current spouse because that would be just sinning again. It's good to acknowledge a wrong decision of the past so that it doesn't happen again. We, I've said, read the statistics at the beginning of the sermon how the second marriage, 60% chance. Third marriage, 73% chance because people don't go back and change what caused the divorce in the first period. Acknowledging the reasons for the previous divorce, repenting of the sin, submitting to counseling, great steps to prevent that trend from continuing and living today and tomorrow and the days after in the grace of God according to his ways. Because of God's grace, he can use us and he can use our spouse whether it's the first, second, or third, fourth, fifth, sixth, heaven, help us. For his glory and his ministry, if we're following him. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 4. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we receive from God. God is able to look and see all our life and use all the experiences of our life, the hardships, the sins, every situation to help other people. We went back in our life, perhaps we sinned wrongfully with our spouse, no matter what it was, God, and we repented, we came back to him. God is able to use that in someone else's life as you reach out and help them and say, don't go through what I did. This only happens when we allow other people to see who we are, our mess, our sin, our brokenness. God's glory is able to shine through those cracks so that all can see him and his grace through our truthful, miserable mess. The bottom line is we are called to image God. We're called to image his gospel. We do that by following his ways, whether we want to or not, by repenting of our sins And through it all, he is glorified. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you have the power to take our brokenness and to change it into something beautiful and new. Even though we might look back and say we blew it, you were able to pick up the pieces and use us, even who we are now, to bring you glory and to help someone else out. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that it's not something we have to earn, but something you freely give, that we don't have to let the past define us, but we can step forward anew in your grace. Help us to know how to do that. Help us to know how to show who you are and your gospel every single day with our spouse and everyone else until you call us home. Thanks, Father. Amen. and turn to number 328 328 have you any room for Jesus let's stand